dimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Today I thought it might be interesting to take a look at some news from the war on drugs and in particular the issue of medical marijuana and what's going on on that front and particularly in the courts this week. Then I've got some sound bites I'd like to play from some memorials uh, and some talks about Steve McWilliams. Uh, Steve, uh, as many of you know, was one of California's leading medical marijuana activists and sadly he too has now become a casualty in our war on people who use non-prescription drugs. War on drugs, they call it. It's really a war on people. We'll uh, actually begin the program here with uh, some sound uh, bites, some clips I got from a press conference at the National uh, Press Club in Washington, D.C., where the ACLU is giving a presentation about a case that's in, uh, sort of a revolutionary case that's in the courts in D.C. right now. And uh, it's a, a case that, with the backing of Rick Doblin and his MAPS organization, uh, a university professor, is actually suing the government for the right to grow medical marijuana for research purposes. You see, there's uh, this real interesting catch-22 going on where the government says, well, marijuana needs to be on Schedule 1 because there's no proven medical usage. But, of course, to do research to prove that there maybe is some medical value, you have to have government-approved marijuana, which can only be obtained from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which, of course, is a group designed to prevent people from ever using marijuana. And uh, as a matter of fact, this is the only prescribed substance that has a single source, namely the U.S. government. Uh, All the other uh, psychedelics, for example, can be purchased from other sources, and so the government can't hold them up. Only on cannabis is it a holdup. So, you know, it's just an absolutely scandalous situation. At the very best, I guess I'd say it's an insane policy. I hope you don't mind, but I've I've had to to cut a good deal out of this press conference in order to have the time and the program for the Steve McWilliams tributes, too, and uh, I think you'll you'll find that was worthwhile. And hopefully I've only cut out the repetitious parts and and left in all the good stuff. So now uh, let's go ahead and uh, here is the ACLU's press conference about the medical marijuana movement that's now on the offensive. Uh, Hearings began this morning at DEA headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, before an administrative law judge in the ACLU's challenge to the DEA's policy of obstructing research that aims to develop medical marijuana into a legal prescription medicine. We represent Lyle Craker, who has appealed the DEA's rejection of his application to grow this supply for these FDA-approved trials. Rick Doblin is the president and founder of the nonprofit organization Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS. One of the primary missions of MAPS is to sponsor scientific research designed to develop marijuana into a prescription medicine and to educate the public honestly about the risks and benefits of this drug. 
MAPS holds the only orphan drug designation granted by the FDA for marijuana's use in the context of treating AIDS wasting syndrome. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar, the orphan drug program was created by Congress to facilitate the development of drugs for rare diseases. Uh, Dr. Doblin is the sponsor of the only research at this time that has the goal of developing marijuana into an FDA-approved prescription medicine and for which Professor Craker has petitioned the DEA to grow a supply of this medical marijuana for research. Dr. Doblin will be testifying at the DEA hearings tomorrow if any of you are interested in attending. Now, Rick, why don't you give your statement, and then we'll move on to any remaining questions we have. Yes. Um, well, I first off really like to, um, to welcome you all here. What is so grateful for me to see is that the government has been, for many years, for decades, trying to say, on the one hand, that there's not enough research to make marijuana into a prescription medicine, And on the other hand, they've been doing whatever they can to block the research from taking place. And they've been able to do that quietly without much attention being given to the fact that through their monopoly on the supply, they've been able to refuse to permit certain projects to go forward. Now, in the wake of the Raich versus Ashcroft Supreme Court case, where federal supremacy over state medical marijuana laws has been affirmed, there are no other avenues left for patients and their physicians and sponsors of research who think that marijuana might have medical benefits other than through the FDA. That is the only route left to protect patients and to try to develop the medical potential of marijuana. So that the movement of the medical marijuana legal struggles has now shifted to Professor Craker's case because we are now, in a way, where we should have been 20, 30 years ago. Why have we, over the last... Uh, since 1996 was the first two medical marijuana initiatives in California and Arizona. There's been roughly $15 million or so spent on state medical marijuana initiatives and legislative campaigns. And that money was spent, misspent, I would say, in a sense, from a social sense, because the money should have gone directly into research to try to do the scientific studies that are necessary to have the FDA evaluate marijuana's medical safety and efficacy. But because those avenues have been blocked, we've had to see patients appeal to the public through these referendums and through state legislative actions. But really, we're talking about marijuana as a medicine, distinct from marijuana legalization, and that should be addressed through scientific research. So now that there are no other avenues, and Professor Craker has had the courage to sue the government, even though DEA has several times tried to get the university to withdraw their application, which they have courageously not done, now we're able really to get to back to where we should have been a long time ago, which is can we indeed do the research? Now, MAPS, the nonprofit that I founded and currently direct, is a membership-based organization, and in a sense we are a nonprofit pharmaceutical company. There's a market failure here in the sense that marijuana is competes with other products that pharmaceutical companies manufacture. It's difficult to patent. It's not something that the pharmaceutical industry is trying to develop at the moment. There are lots of efforts to develop isolated cannabinoids, which can be patented, which can be delivered in certain ways, which don't have the stigma of marijuana. So there's a lot of flourishing of research into isolated cannabinoids, which we support. And we think that some advances may take place that for some certain circumstances, isolated cannabinoids may even be preferable than smoked or vaporized marijuana. However, 
there are certain circumstances also where we think that the plant has advantages and that this should be something that's developed and researched. We've got a history now of being blocked by NIDA. And I'm going to briefly run through that history. Um, I should add also, though, that, that NIDA governments right now, the United States government, is not interested in funding research into the benefits of marijuana. They will fund research into the risks of marijuana, but they will not fund research into the benefits. And the major foundations are still reluctant to fund such a controversial area as medical marijuana. So into that mix, MAPS has decided through the nonprofit context to try to make these drugs available through donations from uh, private individuals. So we are acting, though, as a nonprofit pharmaceutical. I have a PhD from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and my dissertation was on the regulation of the medical use of Schedule I drugs. As Professor Craker can tell you, as other researchers can tell you, they have to focus on trying to do their research, trying to get grants, trying to develop the basic science. There is so much regulatory red tape that many people have been dissuaded from doing these projects at all. And so MAPS and my role is to try to work through the regulatory system and help people get to the point where the research could actually be done. Now, I started work in 1990 with a survey of oncologists that asked them to compare Marinol, the oral THC pill, with smoked marijuana and found that 44% of oncologists had indeed recommended to at least one patient that they break the law and try marijuana and that they felt that marijuana was uh, safer and more efficacious than Marinol. I did that study in 1990 when it was impossible at that time to get permission for doing clinical research. The last research had been in the late 70s, early 80s, state studies that had looked at marijuana for nausea control for cancer chemotherapy. In 1992, there was a, a woman named Brownie Mary. You've got someone who works in your ward. She's facing uh, criminal prosecution. Do you think that you'd be willing to try to do some research into the use of marijuana for AIDS patients in order to try to support her situation. And Donald said yes. And that led us to a five-and-a-half-year process of trying to get his study approved. Donald is one of the world's leading AIDS researchers. He's going to be testifying in our case as well. And his was the first example of an FDA-approved protocol that had been approved by various institutional review boards that look at safety. And the National Institute on Drug Abuse refused to provide the marijuana for the study. So that was the first clue that something needed to change, that the systems, we had tested and we had done everything, but we could not get the marijuana. What finally changed was Prop 215 in 1996 in California. One of the arguments that was used to pass that was that the federal system of drug review was so hopelessly obstructed that states needed to act on their own to protect their medical marijuana patients. After Prop 215 passed, Dr. Donald Abrams was contacted by NIDA, and they said, now we have a willingness. We will try to work with you, but we want you to fundamentally change the design of your study from looking at AIDS wasting to looking at the risks of marijuana in HIV-positive patients. And we decided that that would be worth it, that we needed to start wherever they'd be willing to let us start. And so the protocol was redesigned. It was to look at the interactions of marijuana with the protease inhibitors and to look at viral load and immune system functioning. Knight actually gave the marijuana and also a million dollars for the study. And to their surprise, 
the study showed that marijuana did not hurt the immune system, did not increase viral load, did increase appetite, and seemed to be actually beneficial for the HIV-positive patients. We were... Re- We were not permitted, though, to work with actual AIDS-wasting patients in this study. Since that study was done, nothing's happened because NIDA will not fund research into beneficial uses. So that's a very promising line of research that needs to be continued, but that cannot under the current circumstances. In 1997, I started working with Dr. Ethan Russo at the University of Montana for a study with marijuana in the treatment of migraine headaches. Marijuana has hundreds of years, thousands of years of medical use and migraines have been one of the uses that has appeared throughout history. We also were able to get FDA approval for Dr. Ethan Russo's study and yet NIDA once again did their analysis and said they did not consider the protocol to be scientifically meritorious and they refused to provide the marijuana. What I should highlight though is that we're not asking NIDA to give us marijuana. We're asking to purchase marijuana from NIDA. This doesn't cost the government a penny. We're willing to pay for the studies ourselves. We're willing to purchase the marijuana from the government. And yet, under those circumstances, we could not do it. So with two FDA-approved protocols that NIDA refused to provide marijuana, I recognized that there was two fundamental prerequisites that needed to take place before we could launch a realistic drug development effort. One of them was that we needed our own independent source of supply. The other was that we needed to develop a non-smoking delivery system that would address the issue of the smoking of marijuana. And that system is the the vaporizer. Now, I want to emphasize that I think a rational risk-benefit analysis with high-potency marijuana, higher than what NIDA provides, I do not believe that that will show that it is too risky for patients to smoke marijuana. There's just been Dr. Donald Tashkin, who's been the leading researcher funded by NIDA for decades into the effect of marijuana on lung function, He's just done a large epidemiological study and has found that marijuana is not linked to lung cancer. In fact, there was a slight protective effect. So this common understanding that marijuana cannot be a medicine because it's smoked is not data-driven. I think that smoked marijuana can probably be made into a medicine that FDA would approve. However, because of the social concerns about smoking and because vaporizing does eliminate the the combustion products that are what are considered most harmful in smoked marijuana, I think that we have a much, much better chance of getting through the FDA with vaporized marijuana. Vaporized means you heat the marijuana almost to the point that it burns, but you don't burn it. You get a steam that comes off the the marijuana plant, and that steam contains various cannabinoids that have therapeutic effects. So MAPS, in association with California Normal, and Dale Geringer is here from California Normal, we started a series of projects looking at, first off, water pipes, whether water pipes helped. We found out that they did not in terms of reducing the particulate matter, and but we found early hints that vaporizing did help. And so we have then tried to get a sequence of studies done with vaporizing. Just last week, just in time for this hearing, the Health and Human Services refused to provide chemical laboratories with 10 grams of marijuana for our vaporizer research. We are the only people in America that cannot find 10 grams of of marijuana after trying for two years. Chemical labs. (laughs) Um, And I think that what NIDA is really scared of is the vaporizer gets around the the concerns about smoking. I believe vaporized marijuana can definitely, I believe it can make it through the FDA. So 
Over two years ago, Chemic applied for these 10 grams, and it took suing the government in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, arguing unreasonable delay, and that did not work, actually. That worked for Professor Krager. Professor Krager had applied in 2001. We had to sue the DEA and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals just to get them to say no. Finally, the, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said that the DEA had to respond to his application, but that not enough time had gone by to constitute unreasonable delay for the vaporizer research. And it took this court date to get them to finally review the, the uh, simple protocol for the vaporizer study. Now, the fact that they've refused to permit us to do the vaporizer study, the fact that two FDA-approved protocols have been rejected, means that no drug development can really take place until we get our own independent source of supply. Fortunately, we were able to use some preliminary data from the vaporizer research to submit to Dr. Donald Abrams. He submitted it to the FDA. The FDA permitted a human clinical study with vaporization. It took place at UC San Francisco. The data is being analyzed right now. And so vaporizers have been used in clinical research. So that's one of the two prerequisites. The other, of course, is our own independent source of supply. We believe that eventually... With, as, with the more attention being, delivered, being focused on this, the better that the government will not be able to sustain the hypocritical situation of calling for more research on the one hand and blocking research on the other. So I'd like to then just uh, really open it up to questions. I look at your, uh, your docket number, you know, uh, that you have in the press packet, uh, and you say that this is for... Uh, manufacturer of Schedule uh, One controlled substance. It doesn't say anything about research. Is this about establishing an independent supply of marijuana, or is this about research? Okay. I don't see the connection there. Right. Maps is a, a nonprofit pharmaceutical company. No. So, so we now have studies underway with MDMA, with um, psilocybin, where we have our own independent sources of these drugs. And so Professor Craker will manufacture the drugs. MAPS will sponsor the research in the human clinical studies. Is the, the petition before DEA is just about the manufacturing. When it comes to doing the actual research, we have to go back to the FDA and the institutional re review boards. You can't uh, file these in uh, con uh, concurrence or uh, parallel? Well, no, because when you file with the FDA, you have to identify your drug source. And the fact that we've had two FDA-approved protocols that have been rejected by NIDA, we can't find researchers. It doesn't make sense for us to develop additional clinical studies. It takes a lot of time and money to get the studies approved by the FDA, approved by institutional review boards, and then if you end it up at the end of the line, you can't get the marijuana. So we've ceased trying to do actual clinical research. We've focused on the vaporizer study. I was just wondering if you and Dr. Craker could sort of explain the narrative of how two of you connected on this issue and where, where it started, especially for Dr. Craker. Okay, I'll, I'll start with my portion of it, which is that once I recognized that we needed to have an independent source of supply, I set up some criteria for the, the ideal kind of person that would be the grower. And, and it took me a year to find... Professor Craker. Uh, several people said that they were not interested because it was too controversial, they didn't want to do it for other reasons. And so what I really needed to find was somebody, expertise in medicinal plants, a senior tenure professor so that they could withstand concerns about their career, someone that 
Ideally, had no involvement whatsoever with anything to do with legalization of marijuana, and somebody whose primary commitment was to resolving this issue through scientific research and through working with various people in the botanical medicine field, I ended up being referred to Professor Craker in the year 2000. And then it took us about a year or so to go through the university system to get approval from all the different levels there, and that's when we started working together. I think that uh, Dr. Doblin has summarized it very well. I was very impressed when uh, uh, Dr. Doblin uh, first came to me and explained uh, uh, what we what he wanted to help accomplish. And again, as I've stated before, the the thought of uh, uh, trying to help people uh, through the development of a, a new uh, uh, use of uh, for the use of medical marijuana. Uh, something that's been restricted for so long and not investigated, I thought it was an appropriate time for this to be done and readily agreed to uh, participate. I think this might be a good place to interrupt the press conference and to tell the story of Steve McWilliams in order to personalize this issue a little bit more. As many of you already know, Steve McWilliams was a medical marijuana activist in the San Diego area who not too long ago took his own life. And to tell this story, I'm going to begin with a soundbite from a radio program on KPBS in San Diego that aired the day after Steve's death. And uh, that clip I'll follow with a recording I made, a part of a recording anyhow. I made a memorial service for Steve that was held in downtown San Diego on the same day, uh, actually, as, as uh, there was a rally in Washington. And actually, I guess similar rallies were taken place uh, in in quite a few other cities around the U.S., uh, uh, all centered around Steve and the medical marijuana issue. So, And then after uh, that uh, soundbite, we'll uh, return to this uh, ACLU press conference uh, to wrap things up. When he took his life, he was facing jail time on a federal drug charge. McWilliams appeared as a guest on These Days many times. He joined us just last month to comment on a Supreme Court decision on medical marijuana. He also appeared on our show as a candidate for San Diego City Council in the year 2000. Claudia is a retired nurse, and she was a friend of Steve McWilliams, and she joins me in studio to talk a little bit about Steve's life. And, Claudia, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Claudia, why do you and some of Steve's friends think he took his life. This was quite a shock. Well, it was a shock to me, obviously, when I heard about it yesterday. I was very upset. But in a way, I could understand why he would have been driven to this. He lived with severe pain from a car accident that occurred uh, about 10 years ago, and he had severe neuropathic pain uh, that is very hard to control with regular opioids and pain relievers that are prescribed. Also, he was really pretty despondent about the rage case decision of a few weeks ago by the Supreme Court and felt that his um, uh, appeal that had been rejected finally uh, was going to eventually lead to his going to prison. And uh, he didn't think he could face that without some kind of medication and, and uh, that he wouldn't live through this, the, the, the imprisonment. Now, as a result of having been arrested and convicted, he was not allowed to use medicinal marijuana, and so he was using certain painkillers, which apparently had side effects and, and weren't working all that well for him, right? That's right. Uh, as anybody with neuropathic pain can tell you, there really are no good pain relievers out there. 
um, and he really needed the cannabis to control it. Uh, I think until people do have the kind of pain that Steve suffered, they probably won't understand that the kind of pain he was actually in and how much cannabis can relieve that type of pain especially. Well, why, you may have answered, just answered this question, but why was he so passionate about this issue of medical, medical marijuana? Well, he felt that Prop 215 was passed and overwhelmingly by the voters of the state, even here in San Diego, it had wide political acceptance uh, by the population that voted. And that, uh, but there wasn't any implementation going on, that the politicians were keeping hands off, and that he as a patient needed to push this. And always he had a very altruistic um, attitude about this. He was obviously trying to help himself with his own pain, but he felt a real responsibility to others and trying to get this bill implemented. And uh, he was actually the person that, that pushed very hard and got the task force established that eventually did pass our own city guidelines. So we can really thank Steve for that. He, uh, he, he was an advocate for all patients in, in California. Now, I know that there are some people who were skeptical of, of Steve's message and what he was trying to do. There were those who suggested that it was a front for all-out legalization of marijuana, both for medicinal purposes and recreational purposes. You knew him better than most of us. What do you think about that? Well, that is completely specious. It, it has no merit whatsoever. He was very much against even the dispensary system. He felt that that uh, that people that were using it recreational might take advantage of that. Uh, he he really advocated for patient cooperatives and, and community gardens where there was no money exchanged and it was, was strictly for patient use. He... Uh, was never a recreational user and never did uh, advocate that use. I should mention that Steve was actually a neighbor of mine, and I remember seeing him just about every day out walking his dogs, and you know he'd always say hello. Uh, what kind of a person was he, and how do you think we should remember him? Steve was a very compassionate, sensitive, intelligent man. Uh, the first time I met him, I uh, really thanked him for his activism that I had silently been uh, admiring of, of his courage in the face of uh, the law and, and po politics to go forward with his convictions. And, and uh, he was very gracious about it. Um, I met with uh, Chief Lansdowne and his partner, Barbara, and uh, when, when Chief Lansdowne first came into um, uh, office and he was extremely articulate with with the chief and uh, I felt that he by by the chief having a an actual personal face to face with Steve could see that this is a very sincere man that had the best interest of everyone in mind. Now, prior to him taking his own life, he was facing a six month sentence. Now, what was that for? Can you give us a background on that? Um, well, he had been arrested uh, by the federal government for uh, growing 25 plants. And, you know, according to the, the current city guidelines, he would never have been arrested or prosecuted. Uh, he felt that the city a police department had cooperated with the DEA, which was, it is against our state constitution, that uh, when we have a state law that, uh, that our 
our state law enforcement people should not go and arrest people, uh, uh, according to federal law. Right, right. But he, but he was charged by federal authorities right. and, 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 in fact, uh, pleaded, pleaded guilty. And, and this is what he was facing, six months in, in jail. And, and I think you have said and other people have said that this is one of the reasons why he may have killed himself, because he just... He just didn't want to didn't want to serve the time. That, that's right. Uh, he really didn't feel that he would survive it. He, I, I met with Steve on various occasions, and just sitting sitting for him was a was a hard process. Um, you know, when people have an illness that's very obvious, it's very easy for people to acknowledge it. But when a person is in pain, many people look at that person and go, "Well, you look perfectly normal to me." But as a nurse practitioner that was a pain management specialist, it's very easy to spot a person in severe pain, and Steve lived with it constantly. Was, was there, um, about Steve's con condition, was there evidence that he was becoming despondent? I mean, did you see a change in him over the past couple of months? Well, I, I did accompany him and, and his partner, Barbara McKenzie, to a federal court hearing uh, probably a little over six months ago. And... Uh, I myself left that hearing feeling that I would not be able to live under the kind of pressure that he was having to endure. Um, he was treated with disrespect and skepticism and just uh, blatant uh, uh, discourtesy by the judge. Uh, he was virtually a prisoner in his own home, and, and I, I don't know how anyone could live with that. Steve, to people who knew him and met him, he always seemed like a very... Uh, easygoing, laid-back guy, but when it came to the issue of medical marijuana, he was very aggressive. Some people would say aggressive to the point of being a bit reckless, and uh, I don't know. Did he push too hard? Well, uh, from my standpoint, I say thank you, Steve, very much for how you did push for this. I only hope that uh, that your hope that the city will, will get behind the guidelines in a way that patients that don't have the resources can uh, have access, maybe by donating some land or by uh, providing some warehouse space. San Francisco is actually doing that. They're looking at uh, the possibility of doing that right now. Our city should be doing that, too. Um, there are so many patients that need access that aren't able to get it. Thank you for coming to Steve McWilliams Memorial. Um, my name is David Bronner. I was a good friend of Stephen Barbara's. I'm a good friend. Barbara McKenzie, uh, Steve's life partner, is um, going to come up and um, share some words, share Steve's departing message. And Barbara? Steve would have wanted everyone to know that he loved everyone and that even though he is not here his spirit is here and he wants his work to go on um, it's been very difficult for the last almost three years since neither of us have been allowed to use our medicine but with Steve it was more difficult than even it was for me because even though we both served uh, have constant, severe, intractable neuropathic pain from nerve damage. His was in his head, and there was no release for any of that pain to go anywhere. I could at least lie down and get off my back. He could not get away from the pain ever. And in the end, it was just too much.
So I wanted to start this with reading today's last words. Dear all, this is my time to say goodbye to you. I came to California in San Diego to celebrate life and health with the right to use marijuana for my pain and suffering. But the law that was supposed to protect patients like me has been turned on its head so that no patient can feel safe ever again. Taking the methadone was only supposed to shut down the pain from the headaches, which lately has been very bad. I wanted to stop the pain, but that got out of control too. I didn't realize what I was taking. I just wanted the pain to go away. But now, with everything that happened, I know I will never be whole again. I am an advocate and activist for a good cause, my good health. As an activist, I believe in acting when the time is right. To be an impeccable warrior, I believe that my actions of not being here can help move the discussion of medical marijuana back to what's good for the patient without the DEA telling us what medications we can use. Judge Reuben Brooks is a wretched, evil little gnome who thinks he can practice medicine and tell me what medications I can take. After last week, I expect to be called to the federal courthouse or somewhere to talk about my use of methadone. And I have to stop here to interject. If you haven't read his story, I had been out of town um, for a few days, and he had been in extreme pain, um, which would sometimes, would always happen, actually, whenever I had to go out of town. And um, he had apparently found some of his old pain medicines that he had tried before that hadn't worked very well, and he apparently had decided to try them again, and he had been getting more confused lately because not only was any more pain, but cannabis also is very beneficial for patients who are head trauma patients because it helps regulate the synapses between the brain and it helps clear their thinking. So he was being impacted on many, many levels because he didn't have his cannabis. Anyway, um, he apparently, and he told the doctors, and I certainly believe him, and especially I did not find a note, um, he had used some of that methadone, and he had taken too many. I found him and woke to wake him up to go to his acupuncture appointment, and I couldn't wake him. I dialed 911. I looked around to see if anything was around, and I found some. I found a nifty bottle of methadone which I knew was a prescription but hadn't been there before. And uh, there was no note. They took him to the hospital. It was not a good experience going through the coming back that time. But actually, after the first night, he was very positive. There was things going forward. They were addressing his pain. Um, He had all sorts of appointments, and he refers to that somewhat in here. So now I will continue. Um, After last week, I'll read this again. I expect to be called to the federal courthouse or somewhere to talk about my use of methadone. I cannot allow the government to decide what drugs I must take. It's my life. I had intended to see my Dr. Janako, who has been the best doctor I've ever had, and she has been remarkable. She has gone to bat for us. Um, Our... Our Marinol bill, Steve's last Marinol bill at Kaiser was close to $16,000, and you can well imagine that Kaiser kind of questioned that. At first, um, Judge Ruben Brooks even tried to take the Marinol away from Steve, saying that um, the drug company doesn't have it listed for pain, even though it can be 
prescribed for that. Um, that was another battle he had to fight. So, I mean, it was a continual thing over and over and over. And I think everything just eventually piled up, as that's what he says anyway. Um, I will continue. I am gone now. I didn't want to wake and worry Barbara. She has no idea that I'm gone. This was my last chance to help the medical marijuana movement and others that I care about. None of this was ever planned by me. No one knew what I was set out to do. After last week, my mind and body have not been the same. Thinking is much, much more difficult. I still feel very dizzy and nauseous, and this was a continual problem that he'd had since he had been in the hospital and since he'd come home. But it also was a problem that he always had to deal with, and cannabis helped not only the pain for that, but for the, for the nausea and the vomiting, too. And it had been very debilitating over the last, especially the last year, had been extremely, um, he had really been going down. Okay, But, you know, people who know Steve know that he would never, ever want anyone to know that he was suffering at all. He always believed that it was his responsibility to help the people because if he didn't help them, then there wouldn't be anyone there for him and then the law wouldn't be for the, there for him. He, you know, his, his whole goal was to get people to act and to change the world and do things better. And, and I think as people hear from other things in the medical marijuana movement that I want to thank, Steve also was active in the environmental and the peace movement. He gave really unrelenting of his time. Um, he continued to push on even when he was in pain and I couldn't go, he would still go. Um, he was at several of the last uh, peace rallies that I could not make. Um, he couldn't get to some, though, and so he would probably like to say that fight goes on also. I would complete this now. I know I will not be able to recover to the pain level I was at before. I have been hurt by last week, and that was just an accident. I believe now, though, that I will be locked up in some kind of cell. I refuse to allow the government to control my life. That's what so much of this has been about. I write to use a medicine that worked for me. As an activist, and this is his parents really, really want people to understand this. This is, and this is true. Okay, um, as an actress, I've given everything to the cause, all my possessions. Steve had nothing left. He always gave everything away. When we had the coffee house, we could never sell anything because he was always giving the T-shirts away. He was always giving everything away, but it gave him such joy. The really the reason why we had the coffee house was so patients could have a safe place to medicate, and so we could put the stuff up on the walls and give away the free information. Um, making money was never a priority of Steve McWilliams. In fact. I think it was probably um, the opposite of really what he wanted to do, but he wanted to be able to live peacefully, help people. He loved having people come over to the coffee house, and uh, he loved feeling well. And that was probably the happiest time of his life. Actually, his birthday uh, during that year when so many people came over to celebrate it with him and his mother wanted to thank everything, everyone. She also was there. So um, I'm sorry I keep getting track, off track here. <clears throat> Let me finish this. I'll do this one more time. As an activist, I've given everything to the cause. All my possessions, my time, and my life. He can't give more than that. He ends with the words in very big letters, No retreat, no surrender, love, Steve. Bill Wilson with Family News and Focus. I'm trying to get to the bottom of why DEA 
might not want uh, you to do this because it seems to be singled out as a, as a Dr. Craker. Are you saying that you want to set up a marijuana farm to grow this stuff for distribution to people who might do private research and then enter into a prescription situation so that uh, Americans would receive prescription marijuana? Is that what we're seeing here? And in that case, it would be kind of the forerunner to a commercial operation of making marijuana available. Let Professor Craker address that, but uh, I think Rick Doblin, who is the one sponsoring the research that you are referring to, would probably be better to begin the answer to the question. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the answer is yes, that, that our goal um, is specifically to make marijuana into an FDA-approved prescription medicine. And I think that the DEA is doing whatever it can to block Professor Craker's application because the DEA does not want the research done to evaluate whether marijuana should or should not be an FDA-approved prescription medicine. We're at the stage where we're saying we believe that if we were able to do the research, we would be able to demonstrate safety and efficacy to the satisfaction of the FDA. We don't know that to be true, but that's our belief. And I believe that the DEA also fears that that is the case. While they have consistently said there are no medical applications for marijuana, that it could never be made a medicine, I believe that they are fearful that it actually could and that we could meet FDA standards. And that's why they're not willing to permit us to have a facility where we can deal just with FDA. Right now, there's a special review process so that if you have FDA approval for a project or if you want to do research at a lab where it doesn't even involve humans, that you have to have the Public Health Service and NIDA review the protocols for scientific merit. And they don't add anything to the process. There's no similar review for LSD research or MDMA research or anything like that, nor are those agencies involved with pharmaceutical drug development. So it's only these agencies whose mission is to oppose the recreational use of marijuana that have the control over the supply that can be used for medical use. And what we're trying to say is that that's not the way drug development is done and that we would like to have this decision based on scientific data subjected to FDA evaluation. Jeff from here with Nature again. Um, I guess the only question I had was, do you, anyone here's knowledge, has anyone applied for an independent license in the past, and do you know what the outcome has been for growing marijuana? As far as I can tell, there has not been a private producer of marijuana since 1941. That's when marijuana was removed from the pharmacopoeia and there was no legal medical market for it anymore. Um, since then, in World War II, marijuana was um, used in mind control research, in the Army, and, uh, mind control studies that was produced by the government. There has been no other applications that I'm aware of of anyone actually applying. The government was so successful in convincing people that they would never get permission for such a facility that people did not bother to apply. So the first application since 1941, as far as I know, was Professor Craker's in 2001. There is a very specific and um, detailed set of research, a path of research that has to take place before a drug or a chemical or a plant can be made into a prescription medicine. And the way the current regulatory framework is set up, there, it's, it's like a catch-22. That particular type of research and development cannot take place 
The government is afraid of the truth. Marijuana may be a safe and effective medicine, and the researchers and advocates of medical marijuana ought to be able to subject marijuana to the very carefully controlled, stringent, FDA-required approval process in order to, to, to have the scientific answer, not a political answer, about marijuana and its efficacy. Um, and, and its availability as a medicine. We hope that Professor Craker's legal challenge will expose and begin to redress this reprehensible situation. Thank you. And a reprehensible situation it is. And the medical marijuana story is really beyond Orwellian, which means, I guess, that there must be some more to it than just mere stupidity. And I think uh, probably the answer is pretty clear if you take a close look at it. You know, one of the major constituencies of our own great corporatocracy here is the drug industry. And just imagine what would happen to their profits if we could all grow our own miracle medicine. Wouldn't that change things? And by the way, if you aren't up to speed on the latest news about the medical medicinal properties of cannabis, which is its proper name, by the way, the potential medical benefits of cannabis are just, I think, amazing. You know, I, I know of at least one major U.S. medical school that provides their students with an entire day of presentations each year about the anti-aging and anti-cancer and other tremendous benefits of uh, cannabis. And, You'd, you'll be amazed when you read about some of these things, of the, the positive benefits that cannabis can provide in addition, in addition just to, to pain relief and uh, appetite uh, suppressant or you know nausea suppressant, I guess. But uh, there's some, some really positive benefits for uh, to be gained by everyone, I believe. And between Arrowwood and Maps, you'll probably be able to find more of the latest news about medical marijuana than you have time to read. You know, there's a lot going on in the field, so check it out at uh, erowid.org, arrowwood.org, and maps.org, M-A-P-S.org. Maps, by the way, is the uh, group headed by Dr. Rick Doblin, who you heard speaking at the beginning of this program in the uh, press conference uh, that was put on. And uh, Rick and Maps are also the co-sponsors uh, with Planque Norte of this year's Burning Man Lectures. In fact, if you go to our website at matrixmasters.com, that's M-A-T-R-I-X-M-A-S-T-E-R-S.com, matrixmasters.com, and click the podcast link at the top of the page, you'll see that uh, podcast of uh, Psychedelic Salon number 5 was a podcast of Dr. Doblin's talk from uh, the 2004 Burning Man Lectures. And it's, uh, it's titled Psychedelics and Marijuana, Therapy, Recreation, and Politics. And I, th- I think it's really a terrific presentation. you got to go check it out if you haven't already heard it. Well, I guess that's about it for this session of the Psychedelic Salon. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. A big thank you, uh, of course, goes out to our friends Shatul Hayuk for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And thanks to KPBS, streaming live on kpbs.org. And their guest Claudia, and to all of the friends of Steve McWilliams, he will really be missed, but not forgotten. 
And thank you to C-SPAN and the National Press Club for hosting the press conference for the ACLU. And let's all of us keep up the good work. We're all in this together, you know. So for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.